Hello, and welcome to season three of the Fashion Law Network podcast. I'm your host, Kasia Zabroska Traben, patent attorney and fashion enthusiast based in Los Angeles, California. Join me as I break down legal cases going on in the world of fashion today, discuss recent fashion news, and demystify patent law. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a great episode for you guys. Have you ever wondered how these major luxury designers like Gucci and Saint Laurent are sold at off-price retailers like TJ Maxx and Marshalls, for example? Well, that's what this episode is going to be all about. I'm going to answer questions like, is this even legal? We're going to discuss how these high-priced luxury items get to these off-price retailers and how these retailers are able to give such an amazing price point. Then, at the end of the episode, I'll discuss and analyze a really interesting and famous California class action lawsuit involving the Neiman Marcus off-price retailer, which is called Last Call. The case is titled Ruben Steen versus the Neiman Marcus Group, and this lawsuit, which was filed a few years ago in Los Angeles, alleged that the Last Call clothing is actually not intended for sale at regular Neiman Marcus stores, as the compare-to pricing strategy would suggest, but rather strictly for the last call stores. Therefore, last call's price tags on the clothing are labeled with allegedly arbitrary and inflated prices that are purely imaginative because it was never sold at a regular Neiman Marcus store and therefore can't be compared to any price. But before we get into the details of that interesting case, let's go over the general off-price retail market first. So there are many various off-price retailers ranging from the pretty high-end like an off-fifth, which is a Saks Fifth Avenue outlet, the last call Neiman Marcus outlet, which we just discussed in that lawsuit. Then there's a Nordstrom outlet called Nordstrom Rack, and then you have TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Burlington Coat Factory. Now, Neiman Marcus Last Call, which is the outlet for the luxury department store in Neiman Marcus, has unfortunately closed almost all of their outlet locations, in large part due to the recent bankruptcy of the Neiman Marcus store, which occurred back in May of 2020. However, the store was actually able to exit the bankruptcy in September of 2020. The Dallas-based company announced that a majority of their 22 last call stores in the U.S. will be closing. However, some stores will remain open to sell leftover Neiman Marcus inventory rather than buying new merchandise. Now, I went on the lastcall.com website and there seemed to be only five Neiman Marcus last call stores still in operation, two being in Southern California, Outlets at Orange being one location, and then the Desert Hills Premium Outlets, which is on your way to Palm Springs if you ever drive there from LA, which is one of my favorite pit stops when we go to the desert. Now, considering there were 22 of these outlet stores around a year ago, now there's only five, this is a pretty sizable downsize. Now, I understand when I see Chloe or Fendi bags that these luxury outlet off-price retailers like Off-Fifth or even Nordstrom Rack. But then when I see a Givenchy or Gucci bag at TJ Maxx, it's pretty surprising. 
mostly because these high-end luxury brands don't have any affiliation with a TJ Maxx or Marshalls as compared to a Neiman Marcus or a Saks Fifth Avenue luxury department store. But before we get into all those details, let's first go over a brief discussion of TJ Maxx's background and history. So the TJ Maxx family of stores is currently the leading off-price retailer in the United States and worldwide. It was ranked number 80 in the 2020 Fortune 500 company listing. So obviously very impressive. According to the TJ Maxx website, tjx.com, at the end of 2019, the company had nearly 42 billion in annual sales more than 4,500 stores in nine countries, four e-commerce sites, and almost 300,000 associates. Now, the family of stores that TJ Maxx operates is, of course, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Home Goods, which is a store with home goods, like the title suggests, uh, Sierra, which is kind of like a sporting store, and HomeSense which is like, I think, the Canadian version of Home Goods. I know when I go to see my parents in Canada, I always go to a HomeSense, which is, I think, very similar to a home outlet shop. And then you have a Marshalls, which is also in Canada. And then you have TK Maxx, which is owned by TJ Maxx, and the TK Maxx stores are in the UK, Ireland, Germany, Poland, Austria, the Netherlands, and Australia, as well as a home sense in the UK and Ireland. Now, I've always wondered why the company is called TK Maxx instead of TJ Maxx abroad, and upon doing research for this episode, I finally have my answer. According to Wales Online, when TJ Maxx opened in the UK back in the mid-90s, there was actually already a discount store operating there called TJ Hughes, which is actually still around, but it's a pretty small store compared to TJ Maxx. So in order to avoid any confusion, TJ Maxx became TK Maxx, which it remains across Europe today. Now, back when I was in grad school getting my MBA degree, this is back in the mid-2000s, I had a major project in one of my business classes, which was about starting a new business where you basically had to write a thesis about your idea for a new business abroad somewhere. So I chose to write about opening a TJ Maxx store in Poland. Now, my paper was written five years before TJ Maxx or TK Maxx actually opened in Poland. So maybe the people at TJ Maxx read my paper and that's why they opened a store in Poland a few years later. (laughs) Just kidding, obviously. Anyway, I wish I still had a copy of that thesis. I never thought I'd be returning to that topic, but I remember that I chose Poland for my paper because that is my original home country. I was born there and most of my family still lives there. And whenever my family would come to visit me from Poland during the summer, they would be absolutely shocked at the business model of a TJ Maxx. Poland didn't have anything like an off-price retailer at the time. There were no real outlets or anything like that. So for them to see a store like TJ Maxx was something completely novel. I remember my cousins and my aunts and my grandmother would ask me to drop them off at our local TJ Maxx right at like 9 a.m. when the store opened. And then I would pick them up literally 
four or five hours later and they would have so many shopping bags upon their pickup. So as you can see, I come from a very long line of shoppers. <laughs> Turning to the background of TJ Maxx, again, according to tjx.com, it states that in 1976, a man by the name of Bernard or Ben Camarata was the general merchandising manager of Marshalls at the time. He was recruited by a discount retailer called Zare Corp to develop and spearhead the launch of a new off-price chain selling family apparel and home fashions. And under Mr. Camarata's leadership, TJ Maxx was born with the first store opening in 1977. Then, in the late 1980s, the discount retailer Zare was restructured and spun off three of its brands, TJ Maxx, Hit or Miss, and Chadwick's of Boston, which served as the initial retail banner of what would become the TJX Companies, Inc. After 40 years of service to the company, Mr. Camarada ended up retiring from his position in June of 2015. However, he still remains with TJX in an advisory role as founder and executive advisor. Also, very interestingly, TJ Maxx has not really been affected by the coronavirus pandemic like so many other retailers, despite having a minimal e-commerce presence. I'm sure you guys have heard all over the news when it comes to the changes from the pandemic in retail and shopping that all these fashion houses are pivoting to expanding their e-commerce, they're funneling millions of dollars into revamping their websites. However, TJ Maxx has not followed this path. They have a minimal online presence. And when researching this topic, I came upon this interesting Wall Street Journal article written by Suzanne Kapner and Sarah Nasser, which goes into this topic in detail. I'll just pull a few relevant parts of the article, such as, the discount chain isn't looking to quickly ramp up e-commerce beyond its minuscule level or add new features, allowing American customers to buy products online and pick them up in stores. It stopped taking online orders during lockdown and is even now limiting the number of items for sale on its website. TJ Maxx chief executive Ernie Herman told analysts in May, quote, strategically nothing will change. We will not look to e-commerce as our major leveraging point to get us through COVID and out the other side. In May of 2020, so basically in the very thick of the pandemic, shoppers were flooding the various reopened TJ Maxx stores, pushing sales than they were higher than one year ago, Mr. Herman reported. Meanwhile, other chains like Macy's and Kohl's, their sales were running below pre-pandemic levels. According to this Wall Street Journal article, TJX gets just 2% of its sales from e-commerce, and they shut their websites down during lockdowns. There are also economic reasons for the aversion to e-commerce by TJX and other off-price retailers like Ross stores, which don't even sell online. It's hard for discount retailers to turn a profit when you factor in the cost of shipping and returns. A Jeffries Financial Group analyst stated, for a lot of companies, e-commerce is a blessing and a curse because it comes with additional expenses and a reduction in shoppers visiting physical stores. 
this woman is quoted as saying, my advice is if you don't need a big online presence, don't do it. Also, have you ever wondered why when you go on the TJ Maxx website, if you've ever been on it, the names of designers from the runway section, this is the section where TJ Maxx kind of compiles all their high-end luxury brands. The designers are not visible on the website. You actually have to click on the item in order to see the name of the designer. Now, according to businessinsider.com, Kimberly Greenberger, who's a managing director at Morgan Stanley, said that there is a simple reason for this. Some brands don't want it to be known that they're selling their products at a discount. And if any of the discounted stuff gets picked up by a search engine, then it compromised that brand's ability to sell at a full price everywhere. So essentially, these high-end luxury brands don't want it to be online. Now, the TJ Maxx company has long catered to shoppers who enjoy this treasure hunt experience of looking at aisles of constantly changing merchandise. And this is the unique feature of a store like TJ Maxx. It's that treasure hunt-like experience where you just comb through the stores trying to find that you know, amazing dealer, perfect item. So this is what really differentiates it from a store like a typical multi-brand department store like a Nordstrom's or Saks Fifth Avenue, where at TJ Maxx, the anticipation of perhaps finding a deal makes you somewhat addicted to the thrill of a good deal. For example, I remember reading in a psychology magazine a while ago that the human brain remembers these thrilling finds with much more clarity than the times that you go in and you don't find anything. So even if you go into a TJ Maxx type store and find one amazing deal, your brain will trick you into thinking that you need to keep going back there, finding that adrenaline rush again. Despite the fact that most often than not, when you go in there, you don't find any good deals, but you do get your foot in their door and will most likely buy something anyway. It's really a genius business method when you think about it I can't say I'm impervious to this process either, but being conscious of it does make you look at off-price retailers in a different way. Now, as I mentioned earlier, TJ Maxx has a section of their physical stores and online e-commerce site that they call The Runway. This is where they categorize the kind of more high-end designers that you would find at a luxury department store like, say, a Neiman Marcus or Saks Fifth Avenue. They have lots of different designers. They have some major luxury bags like Gucci, Fendi, Saint Laurent that go for hundreds of dollars less than at retail price. And then they have lots of clothing from designers like Max Mara, Givenchy, Dior. And then of course they have designer shoes, Louboutins, Manolos, and Valentino shoes. So how do these high-priced luxury designer items end up on the TJ Maxx and in their stores like Marshalls and the whole family of the TJ Maxx stores? It's not like there's a direct channel from these luxury fashion houses straight to the TJ Maxx family of stores. Unlike a luxury department store like Neiman Marcus, which has an agreement and license to sell, for example, Givenchy bags, then it's logical to assume that if some of these bags don't sell, they may end up at a Neiman Marcus outlet store. But before we get any further, I just wanna add a quick disclaimer here that I'm gonna assume all these luxury goods at TJ Maxx are authentic. 
I didn't find any lawsuits initiated by fashion houses against the TJ Maxx family of retailers for any sort of counterfeiting or trademark infringement issues during my research for this podcast episode. According to the TJ Maxx site under the How We Do It tab, there is an interesting explanation of the store's buying process, which states, and I'm quoting straight from the website here, we buy from all kinds of vendors and we take advantage of a wide array of opportunities, which can include department store cancellations, a manufacturer making too much product, or a closeout deal when a vendor wants to clear merchandise at the end of a season, as well as lots of other ways. They're able to offer a really rapidly changing assortment of merchandise because, and I'm quoting again here, unlike other types of retailers that buy seasonally, we have new brand name designer fashions arriving several times each week with each delivery containing thousands of items. Now, a lot of times major department stores have problems offloading their extra inventory. And this has been particularly problematic during the pandemic when many stores were left with so much extra inventory because of the decrease of shoppers at a lot of stores, thereby yielding lots of unsold merchandise. This applies to really high-end designers too, like Gucci, for example. They have a biannual sale to try to get rid of their extra merchandise. But then you sometimes hear kind of disturbing news that brands like Burberry go to great lengths not to be associated with any kind of price reductions, where they burn about $37 million worth of unsold merchandise. That's the figure stated for 2018, according to businessinsider.com. Obviously, this is disturbing on many levels, most notably sustainability issues. To be fair, Burberry did state that Quote, the stock was burned by specialist incinerators that harness energy from the process. The Business Insider article went on to state that destroying products has become common practice for the industry, with retailers describing it as a measure to protect intellectual property and prevent illegal counterfeiting. Also, Business Insider writes that Chanel and Louis Vuitton also burn or destroy their unsold merchandise. Another question you may have is how is TJ Maxx able to keep the prices of these really high-end luxury goods so low? There's another really interesting article on SeekingAlpha.com written by Matthew Worley which delves into the business model of the TJ Maxx family of stores and he describes how they keep their prices of luxury goods so low sometimes at around a 50% discount or more. Also, we're not talking about out-of-season or defective clothing here. Mr. Worley writes that there are two reasons for these major deals. The first one is how TJ Maxx advertises, and the second is how they negotiate with designers. So oftentimes stores have something called a buyback clause with the various designers that they carry in their stores. The legal definition of a buyback clause is that it's a provision in a contract that allows the seller of property the right or opportunity to repurchase the property under stated conditions. It gives the original seller the first right to buy before any other attempt to sell is made. And buyback clauses can also be used as a provision that requires a manufacturer to buy back inventory if the distributor contract is terminated prematurely. 
So the thing that's really unique about the TJ Maxx store business model is that they actually don't include any buyback clauses with their designers like a lot of the big department stores do. And in his article, Matthew Worley writes that, quote, when big department stores sign contracts with designers, they include a clause wherein the designer will buy back a certain amount of unsold merchandise after a certain time period. This inventory insurance keeps these department stores from ending up with massive amounts of inventory. Unfortunately, it also ups the price from the designers, an increase that is passed on to the consumers. TJ Maxx doesn't include this cause. clause. Then the article goes on to discuss the unique advertising method that TJ Maxx uses, which also allows them to keep the cost of their goods very low. Basically, Worley writes that TJ Maxx doesn't use, quote, clearance advertising to drive business. There are various flyers that, for example, Macy's and Kohl's use, and these are really expensive. So TJ Maxx agrees with its designers that it won't advertise their names in public and saves a lot of money in the process. Now let's switch gears and discuss the really interesting class action lawsuit brought by shoppers against the Neiman Marcus outlet, Neiman Marcus Last Call. For my non-attorney listeners, a class action lawsuit is a type of lawsuit where one of the parties is a group of people who are represented collectively by a member of that group who were wronged by a defendant, a corporation in our case, Neiman Marcus Last Call. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, this case is titled Rubenstein versus the Neiman Marcus Group LLC, and the case was initiated by Miss Linda Rubenstein, who's also known as the settlement class representative or plaintiff. So in this case, Rubenstein alleged that consumers were misled by the compared to price tags on merchandise sold at last call outlet stores in California to their financial detriment. So in pulling up the amended complaint filed by plaintiff here from 2014 in the United States District Court for the Central District of California, so we have claims for violation of California's false advertising laws, violation of California's unfair competition laws, and violation of California's Consumer Legal Remedies Act. So in reading straight from the complaint here, plaintiff Linda Rubenstein is a resident of Los Angeles County, California, and she purchased these products from a Neiman Marcus Last Call store in Camarillo, California around July 21st, 2014. So First, she bought a toddler girl product, which had a compared to price of $34, and she got it for $18, and then she actually got an additional discount and ended up paying $12.50. Second product was a cardigan sweater. The compared to price was $144. Last call price was $109, and she ended up paying $54.50. A lot of these stores do these like additional discounts on top of the lowest price. The complaint goes on to allege that defendants use of Neiman Marcus in the name of the last call stores caused plaintiff and other last call shoppers to reasonably believe that the last call stores are outlet stores of traditional Neiman Marcus retail stores. 
defendants' use of Neiman Marcus in the name of their stores and the last call line of products caused plaintiff to believe that the stores sell, quote, after season and unsold products that were previously sold at traditional Neiman Marcus stores. Defendant labels its last call products with a tag that shows a markedly lower price from the compared to price, and plaintiff believed that this compared to price represented the price that the exact same product would be sold at a traditional Neiman Marcus retail store. Plaintiff and the class reasonably relied on the large price differences and made purchases at the last call stores believing that they were receiving a substantial discount on the exact same product that could have been purchased at a traditional Neiman Marcus retail store. Plaintiff, like other class members, was lured in, relied, and damaged by these tactics carried out by defendants. The complaint goes on to allege that the last call products are made of inferior grade and quality compared to the products that are sold at traditional Neiman Marcus stores, and that the price tags on the last call products are labeled with arbitrary inflated compared to prices that are purely imaginative because the products were never sold at a traditional Neiman Marcus store and therefore cannot be compared to any price. Defendants' misrepresentations regarding the last call products and the purported origin of the products led plaintiffs to believe that the last call products were of equal quality and sold at traditional Neiman Marcus stores. Then the complaint gets into some Federal Trade Commission issues, but I'm not going to delve into that on this episode. So then there was a lot of back and forth between the parties for years, and ultimately the district court here dismissed Rubenstein's claims under California's False Advertising Unfair Competition Law and the Consumer Legal Remedies Act. Then plaintiff appealed the ruling of the district court to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And in the somewhat complicated ruling by the appellate judge here dated April 18, 2017, the appellate court ultimately reversed the district court's dismissal, emphasizing that whether a business practice is deceptive is usually a fact, a question of fact, that's not an appropriate basis for a motion to dismiss. So in just pulling a paragraph from the long decision here, the judge states that, quote, here, the particular facts as to whether the compare to prices are fictitious are likely only known to Neiman Marcus. And without an opportunity to conduct any discovery, Rubenstein can't reasonably be expected to have detailed personal knowledge of Neiman Marcus's internal pricing policies or procedures for their last call stores. Because Rubenstein need not specifically plead facts to which she cannot reasonably be expected to have access, her allegations regarding the fictitious name, nature of the compared to prices may properly be based on personal information and belief at this stage of litigation. The parties then came to an agreement, and this agreement required Neiman Marcus to make policy changes and establish a settlement fund for a class of consumers who made purchases in California stores going all the way back to August 7th of 2010. And also Neiman Marcus promised to post in-store and online disclosures about this compared to pricing that they use. Then the last item I see here on the docket history for this case file was from 2018, 
and it stated that on November 30th, 2018, the Council for Plaintiff had caused the net settlement fund to be dispersed in the form of checks mailed out to over 10,000 people, and the aggregate amount of these checks was a little over $1.5 million, and that there was some money left over after all of these checks were mailed out, almost $50,000 were left over because some of the claimants hadn't cashed the checks that they got within the required 90 days. So the counsel for plaintiff ended up giving the rest of that money to public counsel, which is a counsel that helps Californians who can't afford a lawyer. And that concludes this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening and please stay tuned next week for episode number six of season three of this podcast series. Have a wonderful day. Bye.